Listener supported. WNYC Studios. This is On House of Cards, a recap show from On the Media. I'm Brooke Gladstone. Oh, I wouldn't be here if I had a choice, but I have to do these sort of things now. It makes me seem more human. And you have to be a little human when you're the president. I've pulled in old White House hands, hacks, and policy wonks, and even the show's creator and cast, to assess, giggle, and yes, occasionally sneer at one of our guiltiest pleasures. You have that much faith in me, do you? More faith than you have in me, it seems. I believe in you more than anyone, Claire. Then show it. On House of Cards. Not your average recap show. So I'm Brooke Gladstone, and this is the first On House of Cards podcast. And I'm joined to discuss the first episode with Mark Leibovich, who's the chief national correspondent for The New York Times Magazine and author of This Town. Hi, Mark. Hi, Brooke. And our special guest for this first episode, Bo Williman, the creator and executive producer of House of Cards. Hi. Hey, Brooke. Thanks for having us. Now, I know you two know and love each other, but we're just going to have to get past that. (laughs) (laughs) So we're going to start on scene one. Very quickly, we see Frank breaking the fourth wall, and he says, I wouldn't be here, that is to say, at his father's grave if he had a choice, but... I have to do these sorts of things now makes me seem more human and you have to be a little more human when you're president. Is this foreshadowing? Because I suddenly remembered the end of the movie, The Candidate, Robert Redford makes this transition from political idealist to pure politician. He wins the election. His famous last line is, what do we do now? Redford's character is arguably less human. Frank never seemed to have any humanity to begin with. So... Now that he's achieved his heart's desire, is this whole season about what he does now? Uh, Yeah, I think that's a fair way to characterize it. What we were trying to do with the first scene was a couple things. First, we wanted there to be a little bit of suspense. For well, we've you know ruined it for people who haven't seen it yet. But but, anybody uh, (laughs) who's listening to this is either a total glutton for punishment or (laughs) they've seen it. Right. Spoiler alert. Spoiler alert. But uh, you know, one of the big questions at the end of season two is whether Doug Stamper was uh, still alive or not. And seeing Frank show up at a graveyard might lead one to think that he was visiting Doug's grave. So we go for about a full minute before you actually find out whose grave it is. And that's supposed to be a surprise. It's not Doug's at all. It's his father's. I mean, Frank brings up an important thing in in that first direct address. I mean, he, he says, when they show up for my funeral, they'll be waiting in line, meaning that, that legacy, that making a mark is important. If the question is, what do I do now? He's got some practical things to take into account. An election is less than two years away. He needs to make a mark if he wants to be elected in earnest. You keep saying that. And all I can think of is, is he makes a mark right there in that scene <laughs> he does. on his father's grave He definitely with urine. makes a mark. That's right. <laughs> That's right. But yeah, you're absolutely right. If we've seen for two seasons this guy with his wife climbed to the top of the summit. What do you do when you're on the summit? The only direction is down. You have to fight to stay atop it. You know, first of all, what do you do when you're on the summit? You urinate on your father's (laughs) grave, of course. Um, Now, I thought, personally, I I thought that this was... I actually am not smart enough to have thought about Doug at this moment. I sort of figured it was his father. I love the point about 
Uh, you have to humanize yourself as the president. When you are the president, you have to engage in kind of over-the-top humanizing episodes, like you know, visiting your father's grave, knowing that a lot of people are watching. Now, having said that, I didn't think the urination was necessary. I mean, I think, obviously, nature called, but <laughs> I didn't think c- cinemagraphically you needed to do this. And I'm not usually someone who gets overly excited about, oh, House of Cards you know, is not subtle enough here and there. I didn't think that at the start of the third season you needed a choking of the dog moment right off the top of I the bat. I loved it. I thought, okay, Frank is back. Well, right, no, no to self, no more urinating on gravestones. <laughs> in the first uh, scene. In there, yeah, that's well, right. <laughs> no, well, here, the other thing, by the way, again, Washington is filled with these people. I'm sure Bo has heard from them like left and right who say, well, well, this would never have happened on the real Capitol Hill or this would never have happened in A, B, and C. This would have been visible to someone, some camera, some aide or something. Oh. Um, and so th- that actually was one of the first or only occurrences where my, hey, that wouldn't happen in real life bone was aching. But he took care of that when he said, give the man his privacy, right? That wasn't good enough for you. Uh, you know what? I, I guess I feel like I've violated him by watching. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> well, how dare well, you well, put him in that position? You know, there, there's a couple things. I mean, one, in terms of Frank's humanity, you mentioned, Brooke, that you thought that this guy had not exhibited any humanity before. And, you know, I, I would take issue with that, at least in terms of our intent. In The Candidate, great movie, you see uh, an idealistic person become a monster, And with House of Cards, you start with a monster, and what we do is we show you glimpses from time to time of his humanity, whether it's the Sentinel episode when he goes to his alma mater, smoking by the window with Claire, his deep love for her. We see that this guy is not just a pure sociopath, that he does have an ability to connect, and he has a very complicated relationship with his father, who is an utter and complete failure, and that's something that is disgusting to him. And so if he pees on the grave, I mean, it's sort of a declaration, in a way that, you know, you you and the way you lived your life mean nothing to me. It's also a little, you know, sort of delicious fun to have at the top of the first episode when we know, or at least we knew in the writer's room, that we weren't going to see Francis for almost 25 minutes after that. So we wanted to give you some Frank up front. You know he's going to you know he's gonna come back, but we're now going to leave him for a little while. That's a structural choice that we made. Concentrated Frank. That's right. So, <laughs> so, so then we get to scene two. Doug is back. He's not dead. And I was actually glad to see him because he's a mystery we've yet to unravel. But why do we still care about Rachel? I mean, her part in this seems to be old news. No one remembers Congressman Russo's downfall, which she was part of. And uh, no one is left to tie Frank Underwood to his death. I mean, why can't she just disappear into the American heartland where you assume she'll never be found again? I mean, from what we knew of Rachel in prior seasons, she wasn't going to say anything. Well, we don't know that 100%. I mean, when you have a loose end and she is a loose end, the best way to make sure that it's not going to come back to haunt you is to tie it up. So a person who's out there, you don't know where she is, who actually does know a lot, that's an unpredictable element. And one thing that Frank Underwood and, and Doug Stamper by association really don't have much stomach for is unpredictability. And it's, I think, natural for Doug to want to know where she is, not just because she's a loose end, but also because he has very strong feelings for her. I mean, this is a woman that he, in his own perverse way, 
loved, but also the person who is responsible for all of the suffering that we see him going through. Doug is just a walking three-part addiction, you know, to substance, (laughs) to the Underwoods, and as he said in a previous episode, to Rachel. He likened her to alcohol in an AA meeting. Well, addiction's certainly at the center of his story. Addictive people, and and I can speak from experience on this, I'm a recovering alcoholic, I haven't had a drink in 15 years, but we are people that need to fill that void with something and tend to do it in a compulsive way. And I think that Doug, you know, has a compulsion to work. Uh, Loyalty for him is a substitute for alcohol. And when Rachel came into his life, all of that control, a way to funnel his addiction in in a productive way. By acting as a mob enforcer for Frank. Well, you know, we're we're talking about from his worldview, Mm -hmm. you know, uh, that was challenged by another kind of addiction and an addiction for this young woman. What do you think, Mark? Is Doug in any way a realistic character? Is he something that wandered in out of Shakespeare? Well, absolutely. I think he's a realistic character. I mean, I think, first (laughs) of all, the notion of loyalty as a stand-in for an addiction is a wonderful expression to sort of distill just how the dynamics work in Washington, D.C. I mean, the person who, you know, they want to please, the person who controls their, you know, their job, their fate is, you know, is given so much power in the way a drug or a drink would. So I think Doug is is extremely familiar. I love the character of Doug. But I, I do think, look, I mean, there's a Shakespearean element to him. And I think as Doug moves forward and his recovery moves forward, I mean, you can see all kinds of foreshadows for how, you know, how desperate he will become when, one, this loyalty is going to be tested, but also how this longing for this person who is just not there is going to be tested. And then he's in the hospital, and we get the opportunity for some much-needed exposition through the television. And we have a clip of that, so I think we'll play it. Submit to Congress today includes evidence that would normally warrant criminal prosecution. But the Justice Department won't pursue charges in accordance with the presidential pardons. I'm grateful for the hard work Ms. Dunbar and her team have dedicated to their investigation. In response, I'll be forming a bipartisan commission to examine campaign finance reform so history does not repeat itself and so that our nation can heal from these wounds. Got bacon, cheese, and regular. Which one you want? Here's where Doug's brother walks in. Remember when you'd never eat a burger? Into the hospital room. Dad would get so pissed. I hated the smell of bacon grease on the grill. I'm not listening, Gary. Houses, the president's hands are tied. Might as well let him burn. They're getting their marshmallows ready. I mean, look at Underwood's approval rating. It's worse than Walker's before he resigned. That's a deep, deep hole to climb out of. The Republicans are going to have their fun for a while. They have plenty to hammer him on in the general. And they're out for blood. They lost big on education and entitlement reform. And if the rumors about America works are true. For the left, that's just too far to the right. And for the right, it's too far to the left. At this point, I think most of us are thoroughly confused. That's a lot of stuff to throw at us. You're just basically putting the chess pieces on the board here? Uh, No, I mean, there's more going on in that scene than just the exposition on the television. Uh, We also see Doug in the hospital room glued to the TV. We sense how strong his desire is to get back into the fold. And that's really the action of the scene. In terms of the, the information on the TV, we take an approach in House of Cards where we try to drop into life. So if a lot is coming at you, it's because for the people in that world, all of this stuff is familiar. And our hope is that the audience will catch up to it. 
one of the things that we try to do in a more global sense with season three, you know, we wanted to sort of expand our horizons and what we could do. And it was really exciting to us to do that right off the bat and consider what would it mean to go through the first six months of the Underwood presidency in 30 minutes and through someone else's eyes besides Frank and Claire Underwood. This is a show that typically has been from their point of view most of the time. And here we are experiencing those first six months through Doug Stamper's point of view from a distance. It would have been false for Frank Underwood to come into the Oval Office the way he did and be able just to immediately start kicking ass. What I also, though, liked about this is that, I mean, everything we've known about House of Cards to this point has been aspirational. I mean, Frank Underwood has been in an aspirational position in which you know he wants to become Secretary of State, then he wants to be Vice President, then he gets to be Vice President, then he wants to be President. And we get to experience very early on his ascent to the presidency through an aspirational set of eyes, that being Doug's. And again, you know, when a new president comes into office, there is a whole new dynamic around him in which whole like generations of people are competing with each other, trying to get as close to that person as possible. And I thought it was really, really cool to do it through Doug, who all of a sudden was this, you know, meek and, and helpless and, and really supplicant character. One thing that the news reports reminded me is that there used to be a six-month honeymoon, they used to call it. And I remember it was during the Clinton administration, that honeymoon became three months. And now there doesn't seem to be a honeymoon at all. Maybe you get a long weekend in Bermuda, and that's about it when you get elected president. Well, I mean, but remember how he came into office. I mean, you might get a little bit of a honeymoon if you were elected by the people of the United States. This guy never had a vote cast for him uh, in terms of becoming president. So I think it's... it's but neither did, you know, Gerald Ford. Not, right, yeah, exactly. And look what happened to him. <laughs> or, he helped or, us yeah. heal. <laughs> or Lyndon, or Lyndon Johnson, you right. know, or, or any number of others. In fact, uh, I don't think you get that grace period when you drop in the way he did. Right. And then Claire comes to the hospital and we see her do that thing she does, you know, she's so graceful, so supportive, so steely, as she directs Doug on the story he is to give to the police when they finally question him about what he was doing in that part of Maryland, nearly dead. You know, if Rachel's a loose end, now Doug is a potential loose end. I mean, here's a guy who literally has brain damage. He is a bit of a live wire. The Underwoods don't know what he's going to say, and he knows a hell of a lot. So they need to make sure that he doesn't become the liability that Rachel still is. And then we're at Doug's apartment, right? He's kicked his brother out so that he can flail around on his own. And he watches the Colbert Report, and Underwood is on. I believe it's the Colbert Rapport. <laughs> <laughs> How did I get that wrong? Underwood is plugging his America Works idea. That appearance on Colbert, I loved it. But I wondered, was he almost too cruel? We're going to play a little of that. This is a fundamentally different look at how to solve the problem of unemployment. It has the size and the scope of the New Deal. Oh, so it's a socialist redistribution of wealth wherein the baby boomers will latch onto the millennials like a lamprey and just keep sucking until they're as dry as a crouton. This is about putting people to work and avoiding the entitlements entirely. Well, I, I like the sound of that. So we're we going to privatize Social Security and then raise revenue by hunting the elderly for sports? 
good plan. You no, can use as that. I say, this is a fundamentally different approach entirely. And you think that the Republicans in Congress will cooperate with oh, you? Oh, I think that it has been proved that both parties want the same thing. A new president in 2016? <laughs> no. Did you write that or did Colbert? Uh, it, it was a mixture. Uh, <laughs> I wrote a script and told Stephen that he could toss it out and do whatever he liked because his jokes would assuredly be better than mine. He used a lot of it, but I was actually more interested in the improv nature. So we gave him a whole bunch of materials on what was the current state of affairs in the House of Cards world, what Amworks was, what the Underwood presidency looked like. And so it's a mixture of script and improv. And when we filmed it, we asked the live studio audience. I mean, that's not a laugh track. That's that's real. We asked them uh, all to keep it secret because this was many, many months ago. And remarkably, they all did. <laughs> You know, Stephen, to his credit, did say, you know, I'm being pretty tough, tougher than I would be on a real president. And I said, go for it. You know, we want to see this guy on the ropes. And so he did go for it. But Mark, I mean, I, I think it's interesting, especially when you have shows like The Daily Show and The Colbert Report and you see presidents going on late night talk shows, the sort of song and dance that they do to promote themselves and their agenda in a forum that that's pretty new in the last decade. It, it is. And it's all also very self-conscious in a way. First of all, I love that you named it, you know, Amworks because it incorporates the, <laughs> the perfectly unctuous sort of multi-level marketing, just sort of branding consultant kind of way that political notions are rolled out now. And Colbert says, oh, you shortened it in order to make it easier for the American public to swallow. To swallow, exactly. No, but I mean, Colbert is interesting because his shtick operates on a couple of levels. I mean, he's a parody figure to begin with, as opposed to, say, John Stewart, who actually is a straight-ahead satirist. I mean, late-night comics are like new gold standard as far as reaching the younger, hipper audiences. And it took me a while to sort of warm up to the voice that Colbert was using because it was not a typical Colbert voice. How is it not typical? Well, he's not usually that pointed in his interviews. He rarely sort of steps out from behind the shtick in a way that he did here. I think it's absolutely correct to sort of roll out this narrative through the eyes of a politician trying to promote this through a different audience. It's funny, though, because even as Colbert seemed sharper and more pointed, Frank seemed milder. He seemed nonplussed, perplexed. I looked up nonplussed, and it comes from the Latin words nonplus, which means no further. That is, nothing further can be said or done. He just let Colbert's caustic commentary just wash well, all over him. I think when you're the president, you have to sort of lobotomize yourself to some degree when you're, you're making public statements. I mean, again, when you are gunning for a job, when you are trying to become president, you can be much more audacious. I mean, I think a classic example of this is the audaciousness of a presidential candidate, i.e., say, Barack Obama in 2008, compared to the prosaicness of actual governing. And when you're president, you're kind of confined to this straitjacket of just having everything to lose, knowing you're going to be scrutinized to even that greater degree. I had the great privilege of uh, being a guest on The Colbert Report and backstage. Stephen said to me, listen, my job is to be a totally uninformed blowhard <laughs> who doesn't know anything. And your job is to not try to be funny, but just try to inform me of the facts. He said uh, the exact same thing to me when, I'm, when I was on the show. <laughs> Probably you've been on too, Mark. But it's, you know, he does. He comes back and he says, look, I'm an idiot. 
Your job is to convince me. That's yeah. right. And and so I build a career on that. <laughs> <laughs> so 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 the the guest is playing the straight man, as it were. And also, you know, I think we're seeing Underwood trying to become comfortable with being presidential. Right. You know, I mean, that is not something that even if you're as experienced as he is, happens overnight. And we know that he's on the ropes. The polls say it all. I mean, he only has maybe two out of ten Americans in his camp. When you're in that position, everything is walking on eggshells. It's a, it's a careful dance because the slightest wrong move can send you tumbling more. This is On House of Cards. We'll hear more from Bo Williman and Mark Leibovich after this. Is it fair to say, Bo, that Frank really cares about Amworks? It's not just a legacy thing. I mean, he really seems to care, or am I just being naive? Yes and no. He cares insofar as it is a a tool for etching his name into the edifice of history. But we do know that he comes from an impoverished background. We know how much the idea of work, of being active, of doing something productive means to him and everything he does. But I think that there's a – this is not a guy who from day one – when he got into politics, said, my project is to put all Americans back to work. And I would argue that that's the same for most presidents. Was Barack Obama sitting around in high school in Hawaii saying, one day I am going to revolutionize health care? No, they tackle the issues that are relevant at the time and use those as a vessel for making their mark on history. So they become passionate about those issues because of what those issues will allow them to do. Lyndon Johnson's a great example. When he found himself suddenly president, how passionate was he about civil rights? The, you can read thousands of pages of Caro to to still not have that answer. But he realized that this is what was the main issue before the nation, and he was going to throw himself into it regardless of whatever his conflicted feelings might be. Yeah, in a sense, I mean, I guess a president kind of becomes addicted to this really weird abstract concept that is history, right? I mean, how will I be remembered? It's something that you can't really know, and and there's not like a day-to-day scoreboard like there is with an election or with a with a vote or something like that. I mean, I think the inclination of people who become president is to do things that are bold because to do things that are mundane is not going to get you remembered for anything. Let's jump ahead to Putin. I mean, Petrov. First of all, what a fantastic casting job. How'd you find this guy? I've been a fan of Lars Mikkelsen for a while. He is one of the premier Danish actors and I would say premier actors on the globe. We wanted to create a fictional character. I mean, clearly there are some parallels that could be drawn with Vladimir Putin, but we also we <laughs> oh, come all, come good on. disclaimer there, Bo. <laughs> including their initials. But but uh but I also wanted an, an actor that could bring a lot more to the table and not feel like his only job was to sort of ape or mimic this real life you know, leader. And Lars just has that expansiveness, that curiosity, that ability to make a character his own. And you know, we were so lucky that he was available and was able to come over to the States and play with us. At this point, unlike earlier seasons, it seems like Frank has no time to be evil in the same way. Right. It's starting to feel a little like 
the West Wing through a glass darkly. You know, you don't have the long stem winders about, you know, morality and stuff. But what you've got is a show about constantly coping. Juggling, right. Yeah, with the situations that are getting thrown at you, not necessarily the ones that you're setting in motion. Yeah, and it even extends to the home. Claire wants to be UN ambassador, and she keeps pressing him to nominate her, and he has a lot of really, really big things on his mind, and I think we get to experience the moment-to-moment focus, but also the challenges. But As I was watching this and kind of getting used to the idea of inhabiting House of Cards from the White House, my God, I hope this doesn't become too West Wing-like. It's way too dark. It it is, and I love that. that. No, but the rhythm is also very, very different because on the West Wing, you don't get distracted very easily. And here, I'm finding like a really, really enjoyable distraction of like actually the pains and the. Can you swear on that? The pain's yeah, in the neck. Yeah, you can. This oh, is, this just is okay. A- oh, we're a podcast. The pain in the ass that is this meeting that you have to take or this phone call that you have to take and actually trying to fight the good fight and have this conversation. And then at one point, Frank just says, I, I have to leave. And he does. And I kind of like that because the multitaskingness and the inhumanity, really, of, of, of a job that one person could not possibly do really does come home for me. Was the shadow of West Wing on you at any point, Bo? No. Fair enough. I am a a big fan of Aaron Sorkin, and any show that has anything to do with politics uh, certainly is in some ways in the shadow of the West Wing. I can honestly say that I wasn't really thinking about the West Wing at all at any point Mm -hmm. uh, in, in working on House of Cards starting five years ago up until now. I think one of the big differences is uh, the West Wing uh, oftentimes is a lot more procedural. A given episode will be tackling you know one or two or three obstacles that have to be overcome that episode. Uh, but in the House of Cards, particularly in season three, we're far more interested in investigating the emotional journey of the characters, an investigation more than anything of a marriage. To me, the West Wing is very much about politics, but House of Cards is not about politics. It takes place in a political world, but really at the heart of it is this couple and how their marriage, which is unlike any other, um, uh, evolves uh, as they pursue goals uh, and either fail or succeed to achieve them. We find out. Claire hasn't been sleeping with the president because she has a quote-unquote cold, but it's been going on too long. And she's impatient about announcing her nomination as the ambassador to the UN, which is what she really wants. Frank tells her there are all sorts of reasons why this isn't a good idea now. She interrupts Frank while he's sleeping, orders him to announce the nomination, says they made a deal. And here's a clip. We agreed to this before we ever stepped foot in this house. I know what we agreed. How am I supposed to run for office at some point if I don't have a legitimate track record? We have to survive the next 18 months, accomplish something, and then look ahead. Francis, let's be realistic. There's no guarantee you'll get elected. I need to be prepared if you don't. You have that much faith in me, do you? More faith than you have in me, it seems. I believe in you more than anyone, Claire. Then show it. Nominate me. I shouldn't have to convince you. It's not about convincing. It's about being honest about the political climate that we find ourselves... I'm almost 50 years old. I've been in the passenger seat for decades. It's time for me to get behind the wheel. That needs to start now, before the election. Because who knows what will happen... 
What if you lose? She's always been the one to compromise. Is this the season when she doesn't? I think we have to take Claire at her word that she she has been quite patient for almost 30 years. Uh, and you're right that she's made more sacrifices than he has in, in terms of her personal ambitions. I think that she's pretty definitive in saying that I, I, I don't have the time or inclination to wait around any longer. You know, I, I think that that sort of dynamic is something that you, you probably have in Washington more often than you think. Well, I, I also think, though, I mean, this is a nice setup to remind us of something Bo said before, which is this is, this is not a show about a White House. This is a show about a marriage. And uh, as a viewer, you, you want to know, is this marriage going to last throughout this season? Because if, if the president had a honeymoon period and if he and Claire together had a honeymoon period, um, that's obviously long over, whether you know six months elapsed or not. But I, I think, look, I mean, I, can the center hold here? I mean, I think listening to Claire there, I mean, that's some pretty – you know that, that's some pretty bold request for something when it's very, very clear what what clear and present stresses her husband is under. Sometimes I'm not sure whether I'm I'm watching the Macbeths or the or the Clintons. <laughs> <laughs> We're watching the Underwoods, Brooke. This is a sui generis sui. What's the word? Sui. Sui generis universe. A lot of Latin today. Yeah, really. <laughs> I took six years of Latin in junior high and high school. I can't remember a lick of it. So, <laughs> um, I want to ask you about a detail, Bo. We're in Doug's apartment. He has a bottle of booze with him. The brand is Old Darby Kentucky Straight Bourbon Whiskey, which is fictional. Why fictional? Didn't you miss a chance at some really remunerative product placement here? <laughs> the product placement is, uh, despite popular opinion, not a not a high priority for our show. <laughs> uh, and uh, and even if we did want to place a product there, I don't know how many uh, bourbon companies feel comfortable with syringe <laughs> syringe uh, delivery of their product. Now, why doesn't he just drink it, though? I, I was confused by that. What do why, you think? Yeah, I mean, if delivered. you had to guess, Mark, I I don't know. I, I mean, thought it was about portion control. Yeah. I mean, I look, I I don't um it I've never taken a drink through a syringe. <laughs> Maybe this is something I need to experience. Well, you should try it cuz it's great. I think I need yeah. to. Yeah, uh, absolutely. Well, I think control uh Brooke is the the operative word there. I mean, um you know, for a lot of addicts, uh what what their life becomes about uh is control. And what we see Doug doing is a form of self-medication. I think the more that he can rationalize in whatever strange way he goes about it, that he is self-medicating as opposed to falling off the wagon, uh, it makes it more palatable for him. So by measuring it out to exactly how many milliliters he's willing to to consume by putting it in the hands of someone else so that he's not actually the one uh, squirting it into his mouth, I, I think it makes it possible for him to live with this choice. So – the penultimate scene in the Situation Room. You're really, you know, this. We're coming to the end of the episode here. You've put the pieces in place. What did you want to happen in that scene? Well, that scene was about a few things. It was about Frank making a very difficult decision, uh, where he knew that innocent people would be killed in the pursuit of national security, and he wanted Claire to see it. Uh, if she truly wants to wield concrete power. Uh, he wanted to illustrate for her what that looks like in real time. Uh, so he brings her down. 
he says yes to the strike. We see this building blow up uh, in front of their eyes. Uh, and um, the the very last scene is is them heading back to the residence and her saying, I still want it, meaning I – I see what you did there and I experienced that. I know what this sort of responsibility entails and I still want it. And he goes, all right. And then we see them walking into the residence hand in hand together. Not to focus too much on the Clintons, but I mean, I imagine when Hillary wanted to lead the charge on health care, we could speculate, none of us really knows, but th- there must have been some sort of conversation about, hey, you know, you're know, you going to become a target. This is a big deal. This is a lot to take on. Clearly, there was an echo of the Clintons there, although I also sort of th- saw Frank's intent on bringing her into the Situation Room as partly you know, kind of sending a message to her as if to say, look what I have to deal with him relaying to Claire that he thought maybe she was being selfish with her own ambitions at a time when clearly the burdens of his office were were so many times bigger than what a UN ambassador's appointment would be. So maybe I read that wrong. No, I, I actually I really love that that take on it. Uh, I was focused primarily on her understanding the the enormity of this sort of responsibility, but I love that notion. Yeah, I thought it was a shot across the bow in some ways. Yeah, well, well, the, hey, yeah, I mean, I, I sort of love that. Like, hey, you know, these are the big leagues. This is the World Series here, and there's really no place for rookies. But if you really, really, really want to head to the mound, potentially embarrass yourself <laughs> in, in front of the world, here's what you're up against. Right. In some ways, it was an assertion of power, right? I mean, it was like, look, I mean, I I have control here. And I mean, I assumed Claire Underwood knew what the stakes were. Even, I I know you never really know what the White House is like before you get there, obviously. But I assume Claire and and Hillary Clinton, you know, 25 years ago knew what they were getting into. But I thought this was much more interpersonal than it was, you know, helping your spouse come to an understanding of what was in store. That's what we try to do with House of Cards is is write scenes that can have more than one layer to them. Yeah. Well, no, actually, you should know though, that in, while I was watching the first episode, um, my wife and daughter were in the next room and they just kept complaining to me because they kept saying, there's this guy grunting throughout this whole show. Why is this person grunting? And they <laughs> are not Doug. House of Cards. Why? But they kept, whenever like they walked by, there was a Doug scene and Doug was in some sort of pain and he was performing some sort of medical well, procedure. Well, when he was... Him, so. Gaffer taping the uh, the spoon to his broken arm. That was yeah. that was definitely that loud. was very resourceful. Was the kind <laughs> That's of thing loyalty. That in, That's it's commitment. Great loyalty. Exactly. <laughs> the uh, I have to say that I think that my take on the last scene comes just slightly in between the two of yours because I didn't see it as if you're ready to step to the mound, woman. I'm ready to have you with me. Nor did I see it so much as. Yeah, you care about Ambassador, but I have much bigger fish to fry. I saw it as an appeal to her, kind of the moral of the episode being, being president is hard, even for the devil. All of the above. Check, check, check. And one of the things I think we've talked a lot about today is when you're president, uh, there's not a spare second of the day really to indulge in anything other than the business at hand. And that immense pressure is something that we're going to see um, uh, really come down heavily on the Underwoods for the next 12 hours after the first episode. How that will affect each of them individually and how that will affect their marriage is, is the big question of season three. 
Thank you both very much. Yeah, no, it's awesome. Thanks, Brooke. Mark Levovich is the chief national correspondent for the New York Times Magazine and author of The Town. This town. This town. Oh. Holy shit. Sorry. Oh, it's okay. No, no, it's good. It's good. It's good. It's, it's author all, of, what's the Latin for this town? That's you know, I think I, it's nonplussed. I was just sitting here nonplussed. Um. Bo Williman is the creator and executive producer of House of Cards. Thanks again. Thank you. Thanks, Bert. So much for episode one on House of Cards is hosted and edited by me. Kimmy Regler produced the podcast with Claire Tennisketter. Catcher Rogers is our executive producer. Jennifer Munson is our engineer. Subscribe to this podcast and On the Media wherever you get your podcasts and follow us on Twitter at On the Media. Next episode, Cokie Roberts and Linda Wertheimer on White House schemes and Easter eggs. First of all, who would ever have a black egg? See, I mean, they can't even get the Easter eggs right on this program. Eggs are (laughs) pastel or in Greece, they're red.